This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories, and we'd love to hear them. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and they're some of our favorites. And today we have one of our regular contributors, Stephen Rasidiak, sharing a father-daughter story. He shares about parental love and how it's never relinquished by the passage of time distance, or circumstance. Here's Stephen. For as long as I can remember, the beach and I have been the best of friends. The sun, the surf, the sand, and me. That is, until Friday afternoons and the approach of another summer weekend. Suddenly, my BFF and I find our seemingly forever friendship mysteriously morphing into that of estranged acquaintances. Summer Saturdays and Sundays means crowds, and while my oceanic pal may like the additional company, I don't, so our friendship temporarily hits the pause button, only to resume Monday mornings when the sun worshippers camped along the ocean's edge are once again considerably fewer. She knew this. She even mentioned it when she called. Had it been anyone else, I would have immediately said no. But this wasn't just anyone else. This was our daughter, Tracy, inviting Karen and me to go to the beach with her on Sunday morning. A summer Sunday? At the beach? Seriously? My response was the same as my wife's. Absolutely, let's go. I mean, how could we not? So, there we were, driving over the sand, just short of the waves, early before the arriving crowds would begin laying claim to their temporary pieces of salty real estate. Tracy had mentioned that the tide and temperature might be favorable should I decide to bring my surf poles. I was impressed that she paid attention to such things, knowing her information had more to do with surfing than with my desire to attract some fish to the business end of my two baited lines. After watching the way the waves were breaking, Tracy chose for us the optimum place to park. I positioned my truck a safe distance from the surf and then got down to the business of rigging my gear while Tracy began waxing her board. Once our pre-water preparations were completed, we stepped into the sea simultaneously for different reasons, but ultimately with the same goal in mind. I wish I could say that Tracy rode some awesome waves that morning or that I landed a record catch, 
but neither would be true. The waves were gentle, and my baited lines remained untouched. But none of this mattered, because we weren't there to surf or to fish anyway. We came to the beach that morning to spend some time together. Although we'd plenty of phone conversations, Karen and I hadn't seen Tracy for most of the summer, even though she lived just eight miles away. Working nonstop at a couple of jobs, Sunday would be her one day off, and she wanted to spend it with her mom and dad, which is just what she did. Following her college graduation, Tracy began working at one, then two, then three jobs, all in our little resort town. When the autumn arrived and her summertime positions departed, so too did she for a job in Hawaii. Returning last June, she found another local beach-based position, and when the summer season ended, she returned to Hawaii in Waikiki. Oh, to be young. I once wrote a piece about Tracy growing up and how I was looking forward to her many milestones yet to come. Chubby little legs taking their first uncertain steps. First words, first tooth, first grade. Of high school and boyfriends, driving lessons, the college years. Suddenly, 5,000 miles separate us, and these milestones have come and gone, faster than I could ever have imagined. But still, my love and concern for her well-being remains everlasting, never to be relinquished by the passage of time, by distance, or by circumstance. And so, it's with a dash of melancholy and a dose of parental pride that I reluctantly concede. My little blue-eyed blonde baby dear has indeed grown up. And to be perfectly honest, this pop couldn't be any prouder. Had it been anyone else, I would have immediately said no. But this wasn't just anyone else. Should Tracy one day return and again ask if we'd like to spend another summer Sunday with her and my best friend, the beach. Of course, you already know what my answer is going to be. And good job on that, Faith. And that was Stephen Rasidiak sharing a father-daughter story. And we talk a lot about fathers. And so often you hear about fathers and sons but the impact of a father on a daughter, a mother on a son, a mother on a daughter. My goodness, we know what happens when people don't have either a father or mother, the hole it creates. Stephen Rasidiak's story, the story of his bride, Karen, his daughter, Tracy, his blue-eyed, blonde, baby girl, Tracy, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages over on YouTube. The History Guy will also now be heard here at Our American Stories. If at the height of his power in 1810, someone had approached Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte and told him that in about 100 years, his great-nephew would be the Secretary of the United States Navy and be responsible for setting up arguably the most successful law enforcement agency in the world in the new country of America, he probably would have laughed or had you sent to an asylum. Here's the history guy with the story of the American Bonaparte. On June 18, 1815, one of the most important and well-known battles in history was fought in Belgium between the French army of the Emperor Napoleon and armies of the Seventh Coalition, commanded by the Duke of Wellington. The Battle of Waterloo. A significant part of that story battle occurred on Napoleon's left at a walled farmhouse called Hugomont. Napoleon sent a division to attack the farm, which Wellington knew he must hold. Historians today disagree over whether that attack was merely a diversion intended to draw Wellington's reserves away from his center, or whether Napoleon thought that Hugomont must be taken. But in either case, the battle started at the walls of Hugomont, and by many accounts, was lost there, as the farm, although nearly destroyed, never fell. Wellington observed after the battle that the success of the battle turned upon the closing of the gates at Hugomont. The French commander, whose division was to take the farm, was Jerome Bonaparte, Napoleon's youngest brother. And Jerome Bonaparte had a little-known connection to his opponent, the Duke of Wellington, through the nearly forgotten American Bonapartes. It is a story that deserves to be remembered. Jerome Bonaparte was born in Corsica in 1784, the youngest brother of Napoleon Bonaparte. His father, Carlo Bonaparte, died when Jerome was just three months old. His mother struggled after the death of his father, and he grew up an unruly child. While his brother, now the head of the family and a rising general in the French army, sent him to a Catholic university, Jerome was a lax student, more interested in the ladies than his studies. Exasperated, Napoleon sent Jerome to join the navy in the hopes that the military would straighten him out. While he was a successful naval officer, Jerome was still not quite straightened out. In 1803, at the age of 19, Jerome was serving with the French Navy in the Caribbean when he decided to visit the United States. It seems that he had inadvertently fired on a British ship, and given that his brother was the first consul of France, and France and England had signed a peace treaty in 1802, Jerome had to lay low for a while to avoid an international incident that might start another war. While in America, a friend advised Jerome, who always said that he just loved beautiful things, that the most beautiful women in America were in Baltimore. William Patterson was born in Ireland and came to America before the Revolution. He ran guns during the war and after became a successful and very wealthy businessman in Baltimore. He married and raised a large family, including a daughter, Elizabeth Patterson, affectionately called Betsy. In 1803, Betsy Patterson was 17 years old, very wealthy, and generally regarded as the most beautiful woman in America. It's not clear where Betsy Patterson and Jerome Bonaparte first met, likely at some ball or social gathering, but they fell madly in love. 
For Jerome, it may simply have been his love of beautiful things, but for Betsy, it was a chance at fame, at independence, at a way out of a dreary American marriage. They married on Christmas Eve, 1803. But that was a problem for Jerome's brother, Napoleon. He wanted his brothers to have marriages that served his ambitions and expected to marry Jerome to European royalty. Marriage to an American, even one of the wealthiest in the nation, was not acceptable. Napoleon ordered Jerome to leave Betsy and return to France. In the fall of 1804, Jerome took Betsy, now pregnant, with him to visit France in the hopes of changing his brother's mind. But Napoleon forbade her landing in France or even on the continent. While Jerome went to France to plead their case, she went to England, and in July of 1805 had a son, whom they named Jerome Napoleon, affectionately called Beau. But Napoleon Bonaparte was a man who did not take no for an answer. As Jerome pleaded his case and still made promises to Betsy, she gave up and sailed back to Baltimore in the fall of 1805. Napoleon annulled the marriage by decree. In 1807, Betsy got word that Napoleon had made her husband king of the newly created kingdom of Westphalia and had married Jerome to a German princess, Catherine of Württemberg. Many argue that he still loved Betsy Patterson but could not defy the will of his brother. He wrote to his brother Lucien, You know the feelings of my heart, and you know the well-being and benefit of my family alone forced me to make other ties. The love affair between Elizabeth Patterson and Jerome Bonaparte was the subject of two motion pictures, 1924's Glorious Betsy and 1936's Hearts Divided. Their son was not allowed to use the name Bonaparte, although Betsy did manage to get Napoleon to provide a yearly stipend to help raise him. After Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo, Betsy traveled with her son to Europe and even met his grandmother, Maria Bonaparte, Napoleon's mother. She had hopes of marrying him back into the Bonaparte family, but he preferred America. He returned to Baltimore and in 1929 married a beautiful heiress and took on the life of a gentleman farmer. In 1848, Jerome's cousin, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, the son of Napoleon's brother Louis, became president of France and in 1851 proclaimed himself Emperor Napoleon III of the Second French Empire. In 1854, Louis Napoleon restored to his cousin the right to use the name Bonaparte, although he did not recognize him in the line of succession, as that doing would invalidate the claims of Jerome's children by Catherine of Württemberg. Beau was now officially Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, the American Bonaparte. Beau Bonaparte had two sons. The oldest, Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte II, attended West Point and served in the U.S. Army from 1848 to 1854, when he was invited by his cousin, Emperor Louis Napoleon, to join the French Army, where he served in several campaigns and rose to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. The younger son was named Charles Joseph Bonaparte. Born in 1851, Charles was a Harvard-trained lawyer who became a political reformer, one of the Republican progressives of the day. He helped to found the Reform League of Baltimore, which took on corruption in Baltimore politics. His interest in civil reform brought him to the attention of the most famous progressive of the day, future U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. In 1905, Roosevelt appointed him Secretary of the Navy, where he directed naval and marine personnel to assist in relief efforts following the San Francisco earthquake. In 1906, when Attorney General William Henry Moody was appointed to the Supreme Court, Roosevelt appointed Charles to replace him. As Attorney General, he was a tireless trust buster, breaking up the tobacco monopoly and became known as Charlie the Crook Chaser. And in 1908, he used Department of Justice expense funds to hire 34 employees who would serve as an investigative agency reporting to the Department of Justice. 
the organization today is known as the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yes, the FBI was created by Napoleon Bonaparte's great-nephew. So what happened to the American Bonapartes? Charles had no children and died in 1921 at the age of 70. His older brother, Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte II, who served in the French army, returned to Baltimore after the Franco-Prussian War, married a widow, and they had two children. His daughter, Eugenie, married a German count. They have several surviving descendants, but being a daughter, she did not keep the name Bonaparte. His son, Jerome Napoleon Charles Bonaparte, the great-great-nephew of Emperor Napoleon I, died without children in 1945, the last of the American Bonapartes. And as for the one who started it all, Napoleon's brother Jerome, who married the beautiful American and couldn't take Hugomont at Waterloo, he went into exile after the battle, but returned to French politics after his nephew, Louis Napoleon, became emperor. He was made a Marshal of France and served as President of the French Senate. He died in 1860. His descendants, through Catherine of Württemberg, are the last remaining line of the Imperial House of Bonaparte. And I mentioned an odd connection to the Duke of Wellington, who led the coalition forces at the Battle of Waterloo. Betsy Patterson had an older brother, Robert Patterson, who married another heiress, Baltimore Belle, named Marion Catan. Robert died in 1822, leaving Marion Catan Patterson a widow. She remarried a British peer named Richard Wellesley, the first Marquess Wellesley, who was the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Queen Elizabeth II and the older brother of Arthur Wellesley, better known as the Duke of Wellington. A final twist in the story of the American Bonapartes. And if you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to the History Guy's YouTube channel, The History Guy colon History Deserves to be Remembered. And all of our history segments are brought by the great people at Hillsdale College as well, where they actually teach history Oh, and everything else that matters in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. The C.S. Lewis course is terrific. And my goodness, the Constitution 101 course, better than anything you'll get in any law school in this country. And I know I went to the University of Virginia Law School and learned more in that course about my own nation's constitution. This is Our American Stories, the story of the American Bonaparte. American Stories, and we're back with our regular series, The Backstory, where Alex Cortez dives into names and brands we know, but whose backstories we don't. Take it away, Alex. They say that the third time's a charm, and in Paul Galvin's case, it was. The entrepreneur went bankrupt once, then twice, and on his third try, he mass-produced the car radio for us, invented the two-way radio for police departments, and did a few more things at his once little company called Motorola. Paul was a guy who was desperate not to go out of business again. We're listening to his grandson and former Motorola CEO, Chris Galvin. 
in World War II, we built the walkie-talkie, or the uh, handy-talkie, they called it. He, so he got on the train, he went to Washington and said, guys, I can build you a communications product where you can be out fighting your war and you can be talking back to headquarters. They said, no, get out of here. So, they, so anyway, when, when there was an assassination attempt on FDR, they were looking for some way to protect the president. And somebody at the then the uh, Signal Corps remembered there's this crazy guy from Chicago who had this thing that could talk back and forth. And we had to go look at that. So they came out to take a look at it. We showed them what we had. And they said, well, we'll buy them for the Secret Service. So that's where they got the first orders. And these are big backpack radios with huge antennas sticking out of them, that kind of stuff. And one day, FDR said, God, what, what are these guys with these, uh, you know, camping backpacks on their back and then these big poles sticking out of it. What is that all about? And they said, well, Mr. President, those are radios. Okay, the, your Secret Service can talk back and forth and they can protect you. And he said, wait a minute. He said, if that equipment's good enough for me, why is it good enough for our infantry, our army? And all of a sudden, the world changed to the positive, you know, because the president got us an order. So you just have to go out and do things and then people discover how to use it and why they might use it and that kind of stuff. We invented digital cellular. That was done on Dad's watch. We had a long-standing tradition going back to the 30s of shrinking portable communications products, smaller and smaller and smaller. We got into the microprocessor business and built the power PC and those were all fantastic products. So uh, Mike Farrow, who bought the Tribune, he used to say, he's a legitimate serial entrepreneur and high tech. He said, Chris, you know who my favorite company always was? I said, no. He said, Motorola. And I said, well, why is that? He said, because every time I walked in the door, whether I was talking to the secretary, the receptionist, somebody walking down the hall, in a meeting, talking to the technology people, whatever, somebody would say, well, Mike, why are you here? And, um, and Mike would say, I have a new idea. And to the person, everybody said, if you have a new idea, we have to try it. That was the culture of Motorola. And so, so and that's because we, you know, Paul Galvin went out of business because he followed the thesis of focus, 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 and which is just a death knell, in my opinion. So he, and by the way, literally, he ended up with not enough things to do and he went bankrupt twice. So everything we learned, we learned originally from Paul. And Paul taught it to Dad, Dad taught it to me, and but it was all, you know, Paul literally went bankrupt twice, and by the third time, he kind of figured it out. And, and one of the other things that they figured out was, if you've got what you think is a great idea, pounce on it. If we started early enough, we had a chance to make those cycles of learning, you know, mistakes before our competitors learn from it and then get ahead of them. That's why we always move pretty quickly in adapting these new ideas, because uh, that's how you survived, and if you didn't do that, that's how you went out of business, and that's what Paul taught us. And Chris was learning about business in elementary school. If you have a uh, snow shoveling business and there are too many driveways to shovel, then sometimes you can hire a friend to help you. Well, he didn't think of it as organizing a business. He just thought for asking for some help, you know, so it wasn't that complicated. How many would have thought that the grandson of Motorola's founder and the son of Motorola's then-CEO would be out there in the Chicago cold, shoveling snow? Well, Chris's parents wouldn't have it any other way. That's the reason why parents do it is to make sure the elitist kid doesn't show up.
There is no, um, no intention of my parents, nor do we, to try to create elitist kids, because the parent creates the elitist kid by not exercising good discipline and tough love and that kind of stuff. And his parental education didn't stop when he left their house. So the family has gathered for decades around educational events. So the bicentennial. The 200th birthday of America. Was we had gone up and studied the founding process and then dad became enamored with the founding fathers. And when it came to 4th of July, he said, why don't we go back and take the Articles of Confederation, Declaration of Independence, Federalist Papers, etc., and let's divide them into six dinners. The last one was the founding itself, and let's get two professors in, one from Northern Illinois, one from University of Chicago, and everybody's got to read 100 pages, and if they can't read 100 pages, they can't come to the dinner, and we're an Irish family, so you can only have one drink. And we sat around for three or four hours, uh, five, five times before 4th of July, restudying the founding process. No, nobody said no to dad. So, <laughs> so we, we went way more than that every week uh, and all kinds of things at Motorola and technology and stuff. So that was, that was easy to fit in. If, if the founding fathers didn't uh, achieve what they achieved in being probably the best psychologists and psychiatrists of anybody you've ever imagined in your entire life to know what kind of ill will human beings could do to themselves and to others, uh, this country would be flat on its back, you know. And so they designed an extraordinarily resilient system to keep in balance people's worst motivations and worst ideas. And they designed a system that could be resilient to that. And you can look at every aspect of state, Congress, how votes get done, electoral college, you know, you name it. They found a way to make sure nobody could be taken advantage of unduly. It was just sheer brilliance. During college, Chris worked part-time at Motorola and worked his way up from sales to sales management, marketing management, and the management of the mobile two-way radio. And along the way, he was known for doing something unique, standing up in front of hundreds of people and admit his mistakes. Nobody made more mistakes than I did. That's just the way it is. <laughs> so, and you can't, you know, you, you can't move ahead unless you're willing to take the risk to fail. And so I just said, look, just do it and we'll figure it out, you know, after a while. If it doesn't work, we'll change it. And if it really doesn't work, we'll stop it. I asked Chris if any of his mistakes still come to mind. They're about 40. They're about 40. So, you know, so, you know, whether it's I backed the Iridium project, that one didn't work. Okay. Um, Dad made the original decision. He kept coming to me and said, Chris, let me go public and say, I made the decision and you didn't. So you can get off the hot seat. And I said, no, Dad, I'm not going to do that because every CEO, when they take over what somebody had done before, there are many positive things that they did. And but I said, if we, if we do that with you and me, the innovation culture's dead. Because then we'll start calling people out, blaming people. You can't have that kind of culture if you want people to really take risk. So I said, I won't do it. And you've been listening to The Backstory and Motorola CEO Chris Galvin. And this is a third generation family member. 
being taught the value of risk-taking and work. And nobody made, nobody made more mistakes than I did, Chris said. But you can't get ahead if you're not willing to fail. And pouncing on that new idea, if you have a new idea, we have to try it. That's the only way to think as a business, because doing the same thing over and over again uh, can often, with too much focus, get you in a big, big mess. You've been listening to Chris Galvin, The Backstory, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories. Valentine's Day began as a feast to celebrate the decapitation of a third century Christian martyr. So how did we get from a beheading to betrothing? Here's Greg Hengler. Today, very little is known about the origins of Valentine's Day, nor the holiday's namesake. What we do know comes from an order of Belgian monks who spent three centuries collecting evidence for the lives of saints from manuscript archives around the world. They were called Bolandists, after Jean Boland, a Jesuit scholar who in 1643 began publishing the massive 68 volumes titled The Lives of the Saints. Since then, Successive generations of monks continued the work until the last volume was published in 1940. The monks dug up every scrap of information about every saint on the liturgical calendar and printed the text arranged according to the saint's feast day. The volume encompassing February 14th contains the story of St. Valentine. In the 3rd century, the Roman Empire was being invaded by the Goths. At the same time, smallpox broke out killing up to 5,000 people a day, which greatly depleted the number of soldiers in the Roman army, by far the most powerful military in the world. Believing that men fought better if they were not married, the ambitious Emperor Claudius II banned marriage in the military. Also, to quell internal rivalries over the previous emperor's assassination, Claudius had the Senate deify him along with the Roman gods and compelled citizens to worship him. Those who refused to worship the Roman gods were considered unpatriotic enemies of the state and were killed. St. Valentine was a priest in central Italy. He risked the emperor's wrath by secretly marrying Christian soldiers to their young brides. When Emperor Claudius got word that Valentine was performing these marriages and refused to deny his conscience and worship pagan idols, Valentine was arrested, brought to Rome, and sentenced to death. While awaiting execution, young couples that he had secretly wed would visit his cell passing him notes and flowers between the bars as symbols of their gratitude. During this time, Valentine also shared the gospel with his judge and jailer, Asterius. Here's Corne Becker, Dean of Regent University. 
so the judge said to him, well, if this indeed is true, I want you to prove it. And he brought one of his adopted daughters who happened to be blind, the one legend says. And what happened is that Valentinus or Valentine here laid his hands upon this girl and she was healed immediately. Valentine and the judge's daughter would fall in love. And on Valentine's last night, he wrote a love letter to the jailer's daughter signing it, from your valentine a tradition was born and to this very day lovers all over the world sign their valentine's day cards with the same signature saint valentine was beaten with clubs and stones and when that failed to kill him he was beheaded outside the flaminian gate on february 14th 269 a.d Although Valentine's Day is universally celebrated like Christmas, those who share the faith of Father Valentine find extra encouragement in this day that celebrates love. Here's Father Dwight Longnecker and Dr. Becker. When we see those hearts on Valentine's Day, we can remember that that heart is, also has some connections back to the heart of Jesus and to God's love for us. And we can remember that the source of all love and the source of self-sacrifice and, and love for each other is rooted in God's love uh, and, in the, and in the witness that St. Valentine actually made for that love. For Christians, marriage is a holy parable of the love of Christ towards His church. It's a visible sermon about what holiness and purity could look like in our lives. We should celebrate what true sacrificial love looks like in a broken world. And ultimately, it should be a day that we celebrate the commitment of Christ who gave His life for His church. It should be a day of evangelism. It should be a day where we celebrate the power of true love to change our world. It is a Christian holiday. In 496 AD, Pope Galatius designated February 14th as St. Valentine's Day. The love connection solidified more than a thousand years after the martyr's death when Geoffrey Chaucer, author of the Canterbury Tales, decreed the February feast of St. Valentine's to the mating of birds. He wrote in his poem, The Parliament of Fowls. For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every bird comes there to choose his mate. Soon, European nobility began sending love notes during the February bird mating season. Ophelia spoke of herself as Hamlet's Valentine. In the following centuries, English men and women began using February 14th as an excuse to pen verses to their love objects. People often sign Valentine's cards with X's and O's. The Greek name for Christ begins with the letter X. So X became a common abbreviation for the name Christ. This is why Christmas is abbreviated as Xmas. In medieval times, the X was called Christ's cross, which we now call crisscross. This cross was a form of a written oath, similar to the ancient practice of swearing upon a Bible, saying, so help me God, and then kissing the Bible, people would sign a document with an X or place their signature next to the Christ's cross to swear before Christ they would keep the agreement and then kiss it to show their sincerity. 
This practice has come down to us as sign at the X or I swear, cross my heart. This is the origin of signing Valentine's cards and love letters with an X to express a pledge before Christ to be faithful and an O to seal the pledge with a kiss of sincerity. And like the holiday itself, this practice has been transformed into the secular stamp we now know as hugs and kisses. History is intertwined with Valentine's references. Frederick Douglass was born a slave and separated from his mother as a child. All he remembers is her calling him my little Valentine. Theodore Roosevelt's wife and mother both died on Valentine's Day in 1884, and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre occurred in 1929 during the Prohibition era. In the 1840s, Esther A. Howland began selling the first mass-produced Valentine's cards in America. Today, according to the Greeting Card Association, an estimated 145 million Valentine's Day cards are sent each year in America, one billion worldwide, making Valentine's Day the second largest card-sending holiday of the year. Christmas earns the gold medal and Mother's Day gets the bronze. Women purchase approximately 85% of all Valentine's Day cards, but men spend double the amount of money on Valentine's Day gifts than women. The average amount a man spends is $130. Of all the flowers bought on Valentine's Day, 73% of the purchasers are men, and approximately 15% of women send themselves flowers on Valentine's Day. More than 36 million boxes of heart-shaped chocolates are sold, and more than 220 million roses are produced for the holiday in a typical year. Altogether, Americans spend almost $20 billion on Valentine's Day. While the most popular gifts are candy and flowers, nearly 20% of Americans splurge on jewelry, shelling out as much as $4 billion annually. And those who prefer the ultimate romantic gesture are definitely not alone. A recent survey revealed that as many as 6 million couples are likely to get engaged on February 14th. But if you're worried that you can't afford to treat your loved one properly on Valentine's Day, take heart. The poets were right. Love is really all you need. It seems that the saint behind the holiday of love remains as elusive as love itself. Still, as St. Augustine, the great 5th century theologian and philosopher, argued in his treatise on faith and invisible things, someone does not have to be standing before our eyes for us to love them. And much like love itself, St. Valentine and his reputation as the patron saint of love are not matters of verifiable history, but of faith. I'm Greg Hingler, and from all of us here at Our American Stories, have a lovely Valentine's Day. And what a great story, and one need not be a person of faith to understand so much of this and the sacrificial nature of love, true love, in a broken world. And indeed, so many of us celebrate this day. And to be the patron saint of anything, one would want to be the patron saint of love. And by the way, what was interesting is that St. Valentine didn't want to take orders from the emperor. And this country was founded on this notion that we don't pray to our leaders, we pray for our leaders. And this is the difference between America and the rest of the world when our founding documents were signed.
the story of St. Valentine, and the story of Valentine's Day, here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports from history to innovation and business and everything in between including your story send them to ouramericannetwork.org and we'll listen to them and we'll put them up on the air there's some of our best stories and your stories are the hour in our American stories and this next story well it's straight out of the history books and we love telling stories about America's past Annie Oakley was a shooting star, a magician whose magic wand was a gun. Right-handed, left-handed, on a horse, through a mirror, she couldn't miss. At a time when women were only expected to fire up the oven, Annie Oakley fired away to fame as the world's greatest sharpshooter. In her personal life, she was a sharpshooter as well. She was devoted to her marriage and to her faith. It is no wonder that Annie Oakley inspired scores of books, and movies, and the Broadway musical Annie Get Your Gun. Here's Faith Garcia with the story of Annie Oakley. Late in 1865, a fierce blizzard swept into western Ohio. Phoebe Ann Moses, the fifth surviving child from a poor Quaker farming family, waited for her beloved father to walk home from the mill. 15 miles away. It wasn't until midnight when Jacob Moses finally returned. His hands were frozen solid, his speech gone. He never recovered and died a few months later. Phoebe Ann, or Annie, was just five years old. The family soon lost the farm. Bills piled up. They were destitute. To ease the burden, Annie's mother, Susan, had to sell the family farm and pet cow just to pay the medical and funeral bills. Here's grandniece of Annie Oakley, Bess Edwards. Annie stepped in and she saved the family. They were hungry. Rather than be hungry, what are you going to do? If you have a talent like hers, you make use of it just as fast as you can, and she did. The eight-year-old Annie took it upon herself to provide food for her family, who now leased a smaller farm. She reached for her deceased father's Kentucky rifle hanging above the fireplace, rested the barrel on the porch railing, and shot her first small game, a squirrel. I was eight years old when I took my first shot. 
and I still consider it one of the best shots I ever made, Annie Oakley. In spite of Annie's efforts, her family's financial situation worsened, forcing her mother to place the children with friends and neighbors. Ten-year-old Annie moved into a shelter for the destitute. Here, she learned to sew and embroider, a skill she would practice for the rest of her life when she wasn't shooting. Soon, she was hired out to work as a live-in helper for a family in a neighboring county. Here's Old West historian Virginia Scharf, Annie Oakley biographer Shoal Casper, and Paul Fees, former senior curator at the Buffalo Bill Historical Center in Cody, Wyoming. Everyone thought this was going to be an improvement, but it turned out to be absolutely nightmarish situation. She never mentioned their name again in the rest of her life. She referred to them as the wolves. They locked her in closets. They worked her half to death. One day, the farmer's wife, the wolf, Mrs. Wolf, throws her out in the snow because she fell asleep while she's doing some darning. Suddenly, the she-wolf struck me across the ears, threw me out into the deep snow, and locked the door. I had no shoes on. I was slowly freezing to death. So I got down on my knees, looked toward God's clear sky, and tried to pray. But my lips were frozen stiff, and there was no sound. They told her folks, in fact, they told her mother that she didn't want to go home. And they told her that uh, her mother didn't want her back. After three miserable years, in 1872, 12-year-old Annie Moses could bear it no more. She ran away, slipping into a crowded railroad car and escaped home to her mother in Greenville, Ohio. Susan Moses had remarried, but the family was still desperately poor and a mortgage loomed over their heads. Instead of going to school, Annie taught herself to shoot. With her father's old cap and ball rifle, she headed for the woods to hunt. There, in what she called the fairy places, she began her lifelong love for the great outdoors. Annie preferred moving targets to sitting ones. It gave them a fair chance, she'd reasoned, and made me quick of eye and hand. Soon, she was selling hampers of quail to Katzenberger's general store in Greenville. Young Annie was now the family breadwinner, earning a living with her gun. Here's historian Mary Stang. She was a market hunter and turning a very nice profit. Certainly not something that was at all appropriate for a woman to be doing in that time and place. Eventually, she saved up enough money to pay off the $200 mortgage on the family farm, and her prowess with a shotgun was becoming known around Greenville. Annie wasn't just good for a girl. She was good for anybody. Here's Annie Oakley biographer, Glenda Riley. Annie was exceptionally good. Her father had given her instructions. He was the one that told her, always shoot game through the head so that you didn't spoil the meat. By her late teens, Annie had won so many turkey shoots that she was barred from entering them. In the 1870s, shooting well was an important skill for a man, and shooting contests were a favorite spectator sport. Sharpshooters traveled the country, betting on their ability to perform feats of marksmanship and challenging all comers. Here's firearms historian R.L. Wilson. Shooting was of such immense popularity that there were professionals. Doc Carver 
evil spirit of the plains is what he was called. Captain Bogardus, who eventually had four sons who traveled with him. And people were flocking to see shooters like this. One such shooter was Frank Butler, an Irish immigrant in his mid-20s who was starting to make a name for himself on the vaudeville circuit. He was passing through southern Ohio one fall, claiming he could outshoot anyone around. And when we come back, we'll pick up this story, how Annie meets Frank Butler, and so much more. The story of Annie Oakley, here on Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Annie Oakley, this world-class female shooter, and the story of a world-class shooter, Frank Butler, who just happened to be passing through Southern Ohio, claiming he could outshoot anybody. Let's return to Faith. Here again is Oakley biographer Cheryl Casper. Frank is staying in a hotel in Cincinnati, and he starts talking with a bunch of farmers. The farmers say, "Hey, we have someone in our county who's a really good shot, and we're going to bet a hundred bucks that." this person can beat you. Here again is R.L. Wilson, Paul Fees, and Virginia Scharf. Frank Butler, this already professional shootist, shows up for this match with hundreds of people watching. And who is it that uh, comes as his opponent but a a 15-year-old girl who was only uh, five feet tall and weighed 100 pounds? I almost dropped dead when a little slim girl in short dresses stepped out to the mark with me. I was a beaten man the moment she appeared. Right then and there, I decided if I could get that girl, I would do it. Frank Butler, 1924. They shot evenly for 25, for 24 birds, and on the 25th bird, he missed. Uh, but he was a very gracious loser. He, uh, he thanked her for the match, complimented her on her skill, and then courted her for a year. <laughs> There's a charming little girl. She's many miles from here. She's a loving little fairy. You'd fall in love to see her. Her presence would remind you of an angel in the skies. And you bet I love this little girl with the raindrops in her eyes. Frank Butler, 1881. He was in his 20s when they met. She was 15. And yet within a year, they were married. He made himself appear safe to her. He clearly admired her. He sparked and courted her as few of us have ever been sparked or courted and every one of us would like to be by someone. And she was lucky to find him and I think he knew he was lucky to find her. For the next six years, however, while Butler and his shooting partner John Graham performed on the vaudeville circuit, Annie stayed in the background. That was about to change. The story is that Butler's partner, a fellow named Graham, was ill, and she was called up as a member of the audience and was so obviously good at it and so charming and such a novelty to the audience 
that Graham was never heard of again. At some time, she adopted the name Oakley as a stage name, and nobody knows why. And uh, Butler and Oakley became a shooting sensation. From that day to this, I have not competed with her in public shooting. She outclassed me. Frank Butler, 1925. When the shooting team of Butler and Oakley hit the road, traveling entertainment was in its heyday. Circuses, theater companies, and vaudeville acts traveled the country, playing venues from outdoor arenas to smoky saloons. For Frank and Annie, it was an exhausting life of noisy train rides, seedy hotels, and one-night stands. Their shooting act might be sandwiched in between a body songstress and a scantily clad acrobat. Here's theater historian Don Wilmoth. Variety was a largely male-oriented form of entertainment. There was a great deal of double entendre in comedy. Uh, there were suggestive lyrics and songs. Uh, and there was a good deal of semi-nudity. The acts could be a tad salacious. It was the Victorian age. Annie Oakley, the Christian girl from Ohio, feared being thought a loose woman. She resolved to set herself apart, both in manner and in dress. She began wearing an outfit that completely covered her body, a calf-length skirt, long sleeves and leggings, and a hat that sparkled with a silver star. Her look became her trademark, and this costume, though distinctive and eye-catching, was as modest as Annie's attitude towards her talent. Here's Old West historians Joy Casson and Roger McGrath. She made her own costumes. That was very important to her. It was part of her desire to control her self-presentation. She could move easily in them, and yet she looked, uh, she looked respectable. She looked childlike. Women in the West were just like the men, enterprising, courageous, bold, adventurous, intelligent. The West really selected and filtered people. The women had to be all those things the men were in spades because they were doing most of the things the men were but lacked the same degree of physical prowess. The women in the West were simply the very best America had to offer. And what better example of that than Annie Oakley? Frank soon realized that Annie was the main attraction of Butler and Oakley. In a remarkable reversal of 19th century roles, Frank Butler became Annie Oakley's assistant. I think Frank Butler understood that she had a kind of star quality that he didn't want to overshadow it. And Frank Butler didn't have a problem with that. I think he adored her. I think he also was a savvy businessman who understood that she was pretty, she was ladylike, she was petite. She would do what needed to be done to make that rise to the top. And he didn't want to get in her way. As a matter of fact, he understood that for the two of them, the best thing possible was for to let her take the lead. In 1884, Butler and Oakley landed a 40-week job with Sells Brothers Circus, one of the biggest traveling shows in the country. Finally, they had steady work with a clean, family-oriented show. But circus life was hard, and the pay unreliable. When the season ended in New Orleans that December, it looked as if Frank and Annie would have to go back to a life of one-night stands and unsavory characters. 
And the circus season is ending the very week that Buffalo Bill's Wild West comes to New Orleans. And it's like, wow, the circus is ending, we need a job. So they ask Cody if they can come on with the show. To Annie, it was a dream job. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was a lavish historical pageant, part melodrama, part circus, and part rodeo. And it featured the finest performers in the country. It offered a taste of the life on the old frontier to an America that was rapidly industrializing. In the crowded urban centers of the East, people flocked to Buffalo Bill's show, eager for a glimpse of the Wild West. This spectacle was the forerunner of Western movies and TV programs. The whole world was fascinated with the West. And as it was becoming settled, those elements that were seen as the foundation of, uh, of America's uniqueness, um, the rugged individualism and um, the adventure and the conflict with Indians and with, um, and with Buffalo seemed to be coming to an end. Uh, Buffalo Bill was a representative, a living representative of that story, of that adventure. And it's that adventure that he put into his Wild West show. Audiences saw the real stagecoach. They saw real soldiers. They saw real Indians and cowboys. There were horses. There were steer. There were live buffalo. It was into this roiling microcosm of the Wild West that Annie Oakley, the little girl from Ohio, first stepped in April 1885. Cody placed her low on the bill, but she soon became an audience favorite. Her 10-minute program combined Frank's vaudeville experience with her talents as a sharpshooter, athlete, and actress. The result distinguished her from other shooters. Annie didn't just aim a gun and fire, she performed. Here again is Cheryl Casper. Miss Annie Oakley! She tripped into the arena. She didn't walk in. She blew kisses. She waved. She was like animated, alive, like this sweet person, but with this big bang gun. And when we return, we'll continue with this remarkable story. And by the way, that Frank Butler did what he did, making himself second fiddle. Well, Desi Arnaz would do the same thing with Lucille Ball. And of course, George Burns would do it with his bride. Smart men. And by the way, we love doing these rips from history. And as always, all the things we do related to history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And when we come back... We'll continue with the story of Frank Butler and, of course, Annie Oakley.
And we continue with the story of Annie Oakley, and we left off finding out how blessed and lucky she was to have someone like Frank Butler, who recognized her talents and just got out of the way and supported her. My goodness, even today, that's a hard thing to find. But back then, my goodness, practically impossible. Let's continue with this terrific story. Here again is Cheryl Casper, R.L. Wilson, and Paul Fees. She starts off slow, one ball, two balls. Glass balls, which when they're hit, uh, they explode and feathers uh, fly out. Frank would toss up one, and then two at a time, and then three at a time. Then Annie Oakley would toss them up herself. She'd toss two or three or four target balls in the air, grab a shotgun, shoot two, grab another, shoot two more. She could hit all three before any one of them would reach the ground. Then she'd go to six. Her act gets faster and faster and faster and faster until, you know, it's just like boom, boom. Things are just uh, being broken all around. She could shoot with her left hand, with her right hand. She, like, turns her gun upside down or sideways or sighting in the mirror. One of her favorite tricks was to have Frank hold a, a playing card up and she could uh, either shoot through the heart when it was flat against her or if it was held sideways she could split the card in two which is a pretty amazing shot occasionally she'd miss a shot on purpose and then she'd kind of pout and this was part of the act because she she could always hit the target she was somebody who never missed I think it's an innate skill. She said, you know, nobody ever taught me to shoot. I think it was just a love of a gun was just born in me. It was an instinct and a skill and an ability that only persons who have phenomenal vision, have a wonderful sense of timing, who have hand-to-eye coordination, who have good balance, and who are really very athletic, because a really good shot has to be a really good athlete. Once Annie's act started getting rave reviews, Buffalo Bill Cody quickly moved her to the top of the bill. That season, 150,000 people in 40 cities across America saw something entirely new. A woman who could shoot as well as any man while conveying a youthful innocence. That, whether Annie realized it or not, was sexy. Here's Old West historian Elliot West. She was this really uh, remarkable, a remarkable uh, shot. Uh, But what makes her especially interesting is that she was able to combine that with with an image, with a kind of a vision of American womanhood that was provocative, but that many people felt comfortable with. She handles a shotgun with an easy familiarity that causes the men to marvel and the women to assume airs of contented superiority. Springfield, Massachusetts, Republican, 1897. She had some sort of magnetism that, uh, that can only come from within. In private, she was quiet and reserved. But in public, she could reach the masses. Annie Oakley's celebrity grew when the Wild West spent the summer of 1886 in an arena on Staten Island. Half a million people sailed past the new Statue of Liberty then rode on special trains straight to the Wild West. It was the most popular attraction ever seen in New York, and Annie was now becoming as famous 
as Buffalo Bill himself. Frank became Annie's press agent, playing on the deep fascination Easterners had with the Old West. He advertised his Ohio-born wife as the girl of the Western Plains, and he never tired of telling the story of the night Chief Sitting Bull, the old Sioux warrior, asked if he could adopt Annie after watching her shoot the Ace of Hearts out of a card at 30 paces. Here's historian Donald Fixico. When Sitting Bull first saw she had these amazing abilities, you know, to, uh, to handle a rifle and her keen eyesight, then obviously she had some endowed power of some sort that he recognized immediately. When Indian people look at such individuals that have been empowered like that, then we have the greatest respect. Sitting Bull christened his new daughter, Little Sure Shot. For a time, he toured with Annie in Buffalo Bill's show, but the great chief soon left, saying he had grown sick of the noises and the multitudes of men. When Buffalo Bill's Wild West opened in Madison Square Garden in the fall of 1886, Little Sure Shot became the darling of Manhattan. She performed before 6,000 people, many in evening dress. The mistreated, half-starved little girl from Ohio had become an icon of the American West. Here again is Virginia Scharf. There was probably never a woman in the history of the United States who was better equipped to take up the challenge of creating a legend, of creating a myth of the Western woman, and then embodying that myth with the kind of ladylike demeanor that would make her acceptable. It is a remarkable creation in American legend. In March 1887, Cody's Wild West troops sailed from New York Harbor, bound for London, to perform at Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. Their ship was a veritable Noah's Ark. The hold was packed with horses, buffalo, elk, and mules. Dozens of American Indians huddled together, bracing for the first ocean voyage of their lives. Clustered in the bow were Buffalo Bill, Annie, and Frank Butler but also Cody's new discovery, 15-year-old Lillian Smith, a sharpshooting sensation from California. Here again is R.L. Wilson. Lillian Smith was an expert with a rifle, so much so that Cody himself had said he would pay $10,000 to anybody who beat Lillian Smith at rifle shooting. She and Annie couldn't have been more different. Whereas Annie was modest, ladylike, and reserved, Lillian flaunted her ample figure and liked to brag. Even before they reached London, Lillian had been boasting. Now that I'm with the Wild West, Annie Oakley is done for. Lillian Smith tended to speak very coarsely, and she was uh, kind of rakish. She liked to hang around with the cowboys. And she had this bodice that said, champion rifle shot of the world. It was clear that the Wild West wouldn't be big enough for the both of them. Here again is Cheryl Casper and Paul Fees. Lillian Smith really shows how competitive Annie is. She's worried because Lillian's 15 years old, Annie is 26 now. Suddenly, when you start reading the press releases, Annie becomes younger than she has been. She now starts telling people she's born in 1866. Now she's 20 and she's more, she can compete a little easier with this new girl in the Wild West show. She's practical, she does what she needs to survive. To Annie Oakley, life was a battle. 
she uses those terms, the battle of life. Uh, it wasn't something that you skated through easily. It's something you went out and did constant battle. Just about everything she did, she felt she had to work harder than, uh, than anybody to accomplish. On May 9th, 1887, when the Wild West show opened in London, Oakley and Smith were given equal billing. 10,000 eager spectators clamored to get in. The crush and fight and struggle to reach the gates was something terrific, reported the London Evening News. In attendance were leading British intellectuals, such as playwright Oscar Wilde, and many of the crowned heads of Europe. Here again is Elliot West. The English were fascinated by America as a place where you could escape the traps of the modern industrial world. They saw America as a place of uh, wide open spaces, a place of uh, the free individual uh, in the wilderness. And I think Cody's Wild West show and Andy Oakley herself spoke to that mixed appeal of America to the English. And when we come back, the final installment of this remarkable story, and you can picture just about everything here. Superb job by our team. When we come back, the rest of the story, the final part of Annie Oakley's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and the final installment of the Annie Oakley story. Let's pick up where we last left off. Here again is Mary Stang and Paul Fees. Annie particularly was a figure that Europeans welcomed because on the one hand she represented the, the wild western girl. But at the same time... She was a Victorian woman who was there, after all, to meet the woman who created the Victorian era. All of the performers of the Wild West were invited to give a special performance for the Queen of England. The performers were presented to the prince, Prince Edward, and his wife, Princess Alexandra. And Annie Oakley marched up and shook Alexandra's hand. Instead of walking up and curtsying to the king-to-be, she shook Alexandra's hand. You'll have to excuse me, please, because I'm an American, and in America, ladies come first. Annie Oakley to the Prince of Wales, 1887. The most important shooting event in England was the annual rifle competition at Wimbledon, and the big-name American shooters were invited to compete. Lillian Smith was the first to arrive. She shot poorly and left in a huff. The next day, Annie Oakley appeared. Here again is Cheryl Casper. Annie does great, and she does it with a rifle. And Lillian's supposed to be the rifle expert. Annie's the shotgun shooter. So she has upstaged Lillian Smith, kind of beaten her at her own game. Annie becomes the toast of London. Some papers even said she was more popular than Cody. When a distinguished sports editor in attendance praised Annie's ladylike bearing above her shooting, she considered it the best compliment she ever received. Whether it was over Lillian or Annie's rocky relationship with Buffalo Bill, 
In late October, the London Evening News printed a stunning announcement. Annie Oakley would sever her connection with the Wild West voluntarily, following their final London performance that very evening. Two years passed. Then in February 1889, much to Annie's surprise, Buffalo Bill was planning a trip to Paris and wanted her back. Here again is Cheryl Casper. They needed her. They needed her more than they thought they needed her. And so whatever rift there was is mended. And interestingly, Lillian Smith does not go to Paris. I mean, we don't know, but it would make sense that maybe that was part of the bargain. I'll come back if Lillian goes. Over 30 million people came to the Paris Exposition of 1889. Within sight of the newly erected Eiffel Tower, Buffalo Bill's Wild West played to overflow crowds night after night. On opening night, when Annie made her entrance, she noticed hired clappers. I want honest applause, or none at all, she insisted. Annie Oakley was soon the talk of Paris. The French president offered her a commission in the army. When a French duke proposed marriage, Annie literally shot him down, putting a bullet through his portrait. Prince Wilhelm of Prussia was so impressed by Annie's skill that he insisted on participating in her act. He lit a cigarette. From 30 paces, Annie shot it away. If my aim had been poor, she later said, I might have averted the Great War. And the king of Senegal tried to buy her for 100,000 francs to destroy the vicious lions that devastate my country's villages, he said. In 1983, the World's Fair opened in Chicago and glowed with a new marvel, electric light, and showcased another, Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, a primitive device for viewing movies. In 1894, Edison invited Annie and Frank to his New Jersey studio for a test of his movie camera. In dim, smoky images, Edison's camera managed to capture Annie's performance. Ironically, the invention also signaled the end of the Wild West shows. By the early 1900s, movies would become the main source of Western entertainment. But for the rest of the 1890s, Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill were as popular as ever. Then, at 42 years of age, and from out of nowhere, on August 11, 1903, headlines screamed of her downfall. William Randolph Hearst's newspapers reported that Oakley had stolen a pair of men's pants to buy cocaine. Annie Oakley, the most famous rifle shot in the world, lies today in a cell at the Harrison Street Station for stealing the trousers of a Negro in order to buy cocaine. Chicago American, August 11, 1903. Here's Paul Fees. Well, of course, it wasn't true. She was so outraged. It so went contrary to her character that she sued against every newspaper that had run that story. Uh, and she won in virtually all of them. Hearst had to pay her $27,000. But after expenses, she actually lost money over the course of her six-year campaign. But Annie Oakley never left the public eye. She used her celebrity to encourage women to be physically fit and taught thousands to shoot. Throughout her career, she appeared at gun clubs, defeating male opponents who doubted her skill, then taught their wives how to shoot. It was her personal crusade. 
I want to see women rise superior to that old-fashioned terror of firearms. I would like to see every woman know how to handle them, as naturally as they know how to handle babies. Here again is Mary Stang and Cheryl Casper. She was a very early advocate of women's use of firearms for self-defense. She believed that it was thoroughly appropriate for a one woman to have a, a, a gun at her bedside. And she also argued that women, especially if they had to be out and about alone, ought to think seriously about carrying firearms for self-protection. This is when she starts sounding like a feminist. You know, I think women should have the right to protect themselves and carry a gun. And she even appears in the Cincinnati newspaper article showing how to hide your gun under an umbrella so no one will know you have it. And then if someone attacks you, you can pull it out. Annie never asked for a cent from her 15,000-plus pupils. She would be repaid, she said, if the women became shooting enthusiasts. They did. One, a proper Bostonian, coolly held a robber at bay until the police came to arrest him. She credited Annie for her success. Here again is Paul Fees. She felt it was very important for women to be able to conduct themselves without fear in a man's world. And she took steps to teach them. As I have taught over 15,000 women how to shoot, I modestly feel that I have some right to speak with assurance on this subject. Individual for individual, women shoot as well as men. Annie Oakley, 1926. Annie had once offered to lead a company of 50 lady sharpshooters to fight in World War I. But for the most part, she left politics to men. Annie Oakley didn't even think women should be allowed to vote. Although she did not espouse women's suffrage and she didn't talk about all of the issues that were important to the so-called new women of her time, arguably Annie was living a lot of the values that her feminist sisters were arguing for. Perhaps she didn't see herself as needing feminism to achieve what she had been able to achieve. Then, on November 3rd, 1926, Annie Oakley died at her home in her sleep. She was 66 years old. 18 days later, Frank Butler, too, was gone. They were buried beside each other in Greenville, Ohio, not far from the fairy places she had roamed as a little girl, with rifle in hand. Will Rogers, who had visited Annie just months before her death, penned a newspaper story about his fellow Western performer that could have served as her eulogy. She is a greater character than she was a rifle shot. Annie Oakley's name, her lovable traits, her thoughtful consideration of others, will live as a mark for any woman to shoot at. Here again is Virginia Scharf. There's never been anybody like Annie Oakley. There's never been somebody who had both the power of the gun and this power of a kind of sweetness and purity that makes her safe even though she's holding that gun in her hand. From movies, musicals, and television shows to women's self-defense classes, the legend of Annie Oakley and the life of Phoebe Ann Moses reflect the qualities that best define the American character. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. Great job, as always, by Faith Garcia and Greg Hengler as well. 
And I just can't get the picture out of my head of Sitting Bull with this young lady and him calling her little sure shot out on the trail. And that is the circuit, I should say, because sooner or later Sitting Bull had had enough of the big cities and just wanted to get back home. And I also keep thinking about all of those young ladies and women that Annie Oakley was training to, well, to take care of themselves, to not be afraid. And I think of my own girls, my wife and my daughter, and I think there are eight firearms between them in my home, and they know how to use them, and they know how to take care of themselves, and they are not afraid. What a tradition, what a story. And my goodness, eight years old, tragedy befalls her, 11 years old, three years straight, she spends as practically a slave, comes back home, earns her keep, and ultimately goes out on the road to become an international celebrity, all while trying to maintain her Victorian dignity at a time when, well, so much else was challenging her femininity. The story of Annie Oakley, and in a sense, her husband, Frank Butler, too, dying only 18 days apart. And that happens so often, folks, in great love affairs. Their stories here on Our American Stories. Sharpshooter Daughter and wife She could split cards From 89 feet Beautiful 